Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. When disaster strikes, help may not arrive wearing a cape, but it very well may be wearing a gray shirt. The men and women wearing gray shirts that make up Team Rubicon descend on areas hit by weather disasters or humanitarian crisis. Team Rubicon is a disaster relief organization founded by veterans that mobilizes veterans, first responders, and civilians to serve communities in need. Today, we talk to a veteran, the CEO of Team Rubicon, Art De La Cruz. Art, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Well, thank you for having me, Dr. Shepard. Appreciate well, the opportunity. Yeah, and, and feel free to call me Marshall or whatever is most comfortable for you. But let me just give a little of your background for our listeners. You're currently the CEO of Team Rubicon, a retired U.S. Naval officer who spent 22 years in a number of leadership positions, including commanding officer of a strike fighter squadron, uh, serve as a top gun instructor, and six combat deployments. Now, after retiring, Art, uh, after retiring from the Navy, he spent two and a half years in the aerospace and defense sector with McKinsey and Company as Secretary and Defense Corporate Fellow. He has a Master of Science degree in Operations Manage- Management from the University of Arkansas and a Bachelor of Science in Physics from the U.S. Naval Academy. Uh, the first question that I usually ask guests is, how did you become a weather geek? But the question I'm going to ask you is, are you a weather geek? Yeah, you know, it's funny across uh, my journey in life, particularly in the Navy as an aviator, weather was everything, right? So you began to understand everything from tide cycles to weather to winds to, you know, the dynamics of, of heat and transfer, you know, around a thundercloud, all of those things became really important from a weather perspective, you know, in practical application, even things like you know, transiting cross country and finding out what the jet stream is doing for flight planning or fuel, all of those things were different considerations. Um, so yes, um, through the role I had in the Navy, weather became a dominating factor in every decision we had to make. Um, and, and you threw that all, you know, from wonderment as we watch what's happening, you know, from sunrise to sunset. And now in this current role as the CEO of a disaster response organization, you know, we really watch and predict, you know, what weather impacts could have. And certainly as storms are approaching, you know, what might happen, um, you know, now and in the future. Yeah. And I'm just so fascinated by Team Rubicon and we're going to dive into it. In fact, why don't don't you use this opportunity to introduce our listeners to Team Rubicon? Yeah. Well, Team Rubicon is an organization that helps communities prepare, respond, and recover from natural disasters and humanitarian crises by mobilizing military veterans, civilians, and first responders to help these communities, you know, on essentially their worst day. Um, We've expanded now, you know, since our origins in 2010, after the Haiti earthquake, when Jake Wood, you know, saw what had happened in Haiti, said, this looks familiar to what I experienced in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I feel like it make a difference. And we found through that, that military veterans bring skills and experience that are really, really great in these column disasters, rapid onset events 
clients with unmet needs, uh, ambiguity, decision-making and action that's required in those moments is not unlike what men and women who wore the uniform experience. So that happened in 2010. And since that time, we've continued to grow. I'm now at 150,000 volunteers. We've responded to over 750 different operations, you know, across the country uh, and internationally. And in each of those moments, our goal is to alleviate some of the human suffering, to make sure that unmet needs are met in a rapid manner. And now as we continue to understand to that point about being a weather geek that, you know, the, the damages and the probability of these massive uh, events is higher from fires to floods to tornadoes. So how do we begin to help communities prepare, which we call mitigation um, for the possibility of that occurring? Um, and that's kind of the story now. And I think the secret sauce is really um, in communities and particularly the men and women who decide to volunteer, the people who support us understand that this is something where they can have impact and make a difference um, for people who are impacted by natural disasters. And, you know, one of the signatures of your organization are the gray shirts. Uh, you know, I want to hear the story behind the gray shirts. And then also I was going to ask the question of, of course, and first of all, let me take this time to thank you and all veterans for your service to this country on, on behalf of all of us. So thank you. But I was going to ask the question, why veterans? What, what is it about the group of veterans? But you kind of answer the question because these are people who have already given and sacrificed uh, on behalf of others. And so I, I suspect the answer is rooted in there. So uh, give us the history of the gray shirts and then your perspective on why why veterans are really uh, appropriate and uh, for this for this role. Yeah, if it's OK. I'll kind of flip the order of the questions. Sure, there. And we'll talk first with veterans. Right. And I think one of the one of the common stereotypes that we'd love to, you know, dispel is, you know, you have this vision that a man or woman who's worn the uniform is the object of a mission of an organization. You know, Team Rubicon is there to serve the military veteran um, after all of these scars of battle, when the reality is we don't view military veterans as the object of our mission. They're actually the agent of the mission. They are the secret sauce to being able to deploy members into a community to have impact. And you can, one of the ways I like to explain thinking about this is it's easy to look at a military veteran simply and simply label them by the mission they performed. This man or woman was an infantry person. They were an aviator. They drove tanks. They were logisticians. Um, and one of the things that's really valuable is you begin to view a military veteran, not so much as that identity that they had through their combat in arms mission, but you view them as graduates of a very unique school. You know, they had, um, classes in crisis management. They had, they had, you know, um, classes in safety and process uh, adherence. They had classes in, you know, leadership skills or management. They had, you know, maybe classes in administration or medical, all of these different things that a military service member has to do in their unit. All of those become unique classes and assets that, if you if you dissect those or you break them up, you can apply these in different ways when disaster strikes. So to the question about why military veterans, you can imagine after the tornadoes in Kentucky, the ability to simply look at this and say, you know what, this class I took in Iraq or Afghanistan actually translates to this destruction here. I know there are people that need help. 
I know there's a lack of, you know, full information, but I also have the ability to digest what I have, to understand the assets that are around me, to make a decision and begin moving out. And I'll refine that as necessary. The other great thing it brings with it is in that moment, those unique classes, experience and skills that the man or woman had overseas can now be applied to more broadly move the community forward. They can work closely with, you know, the local government. They can work closely with spontaneous volunteers and that show up and say, how can I help my neighbor? They can help coordinate and be able to assess and pass information in the way they did in the military very quickly. And they can train the civilians or the first responders that are around them. Uh, in that moment to move forward. So it's one of those, one of those unique situations where one plus one, you know, a military veteran plus someone else can oftentimes equal three simply because those experiences and skills translate in that moment and can be applied, you know, readily to create the outcomes that the community needs. And, and the, the, the follow on is the, the history of the gray shirt, because I was really curious about that. Yeah. You know, the gray shirt is interesting. Um, and it, it is kind of an answer to the thing that military veterans all often look for uh, when they join Team Rubicon. They're looking to reunite with community. They're relooking. Uh, they're looking to, you know, have a common identity and they're looking for that mission or purpose that disaster you know, responding to disasters gives. So the gray shirt specifically is that piece of identity. It's that new uniform and the genesis of the gray shirt actually. And it's, it's uh, elegant in its simplicity is in one of the early missions, you know, and it wasn't the first mission, but it was a subsequent one. The team that was getting to ready to deploy to Chile said, you know, if we're going to be an organization, we should probably have a uniform. And the only shirt that was available was an on the rack as these, these, you know, men stood around and said, we're getting ready to go was a gray shirt. You know, it was a, you know, a breathable under armor gray shirt. And that became, you know, the identity of the team, you know, gray shirt became the common identifier and that's evolved. And now if you take a look at the gray shirt, one of the really distinguishing features is on the chest. It has a big white strip and people pull out their Sharpies and say, this is who I am, you know? So you can identify just like in the military where you'd have a name tag or a rank tab. Mm -hmm. And you'd say, this is the person, this is their name. And it's a way of, again, taking some of the great things that the military brings and inculcating them in our culture. Uh, that's an interesting. It's always I I I suspect that it, it there were some really interesting aspects of that story. Um, what do you do your teams when I mean you're you, you have the tornadoes in uh, Kentucky or perhaps the fires in Colorado that we've seen when you deploy a team? I mean, to walk us through for a weather disaster what the team does when they when they get on the ground there. Yeah, well, I think, you know, it's it's kind of uh, the analogy I often use when you describe this is it's a bit like preparing for a, a game in professional sports. Right. You uh, you try to create the team that you're going to need. You try to understand and build the strategy that you're going to need to win the game. You get to the game and you execute the plan. And afterwards, you try to understand whether or not um, you can make improvements. So for us. Let's take an example of something that uh, unrolls over a larger amount of time, a hurricane, uh, as an example. So we've got 72 hours. We said, hey, listen, there's this depression. It's probably likely going to develop in, in the Gulf. We will begin assembling the teams in the area with a probability of being hit. 
So we say, Hey, everyone get ready. There's a potential that we're going to, you know, play in the game. We begin moving materials closer to the likely area of landfall and those will shift left and right. We begin to understand what the field is going to look like when we get there by understanding, you know, the conditions, you know, is this a place that's going to be have storm surge? What's the uh, social vulnerability? What's the population density? What is our density of volunteers? Uh, And then as soon as the storm makes landfall, we begin to mirror some of the things that we used to do in the military. We will send a reconnaissance team that gets to ground truth as quickly as possible. We'll begin to have orders written, uh, telling our volunteers to be ready. This is the likely areas of deployment. What is your availability? We begin to catalog the capabilities and capacity that's going to be required to help folks. And then we, we react, you know, so that is, true disaster response in that example of a hurricane. In other situations, the second uh, type of disaster you mentioned, you know, the probability of fires. One of the things that we want to do out West, and we've put a lot of energy into it is mitigation. You know, we understand uh, and you see uh, conditions like a drought, you understand the Santa Ana's are going to whip up. You understand there's a high probability. So how do you now begin to mitigate against the potential for damage by doing things like creating a fire breaks, you know, eliminating fuel. We'll do a lot of that stuff, you know, now to prepare for potential fires as an example in, you know, late 2022 or summer of 2022, we've got people with chainsaws and heavy equipment, you know, moving, you know, dry potential kindling out to create these lanes that will be the first barrier uh, in trying to save communities should a fire strike. Um, So across the board, you know, all of these different things happen. Uh, And one of the things that's really important through this all is can we continue to train and develop the talent we need, the men and women who put on the gray shirt we just talked about, invest in them so, you know, we don't end up at an operation where we say who here knows how to use a chainsaw and, and accept and introduce all of these different risks where someone says, yeah, I used one when I was a kid. Instead, how do we use an event, say mitigation to train people to use a chainsaw properly, to make sure the equipment, they understand how to maintain it and use it correctly to make sure they have all the PPE they're learning as we're doing mitigation operations in the West, they might deploy to use those, skills in the after aftermath of a tornado in Kentucky or a hurricane that hits Florida. So we continually also strive to say, how do we make sure the team is better for the games that may come later on? Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with bite clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is Gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. 
Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Art De La Cruz, CEO of Team Rubicon and uh, veteran that has served this nation. Really interesting story. You mentioned something I wanted to kind of sneak in here before I ask my next question. You mentioned that you were monitoring tropical depressions that may become a hurricane and you're monitoring weather conditions. Are you just sort of doing that off the cuff or do you have any meteorological expertise in your team? Are you watching the Weather Channel? Hope so. Or are you, um, you know, consulting the National Weather Service? How do you get your weather information? Yeah, I think it's I think it's all of those. You know, the the reality is there's and I think it's a beautiful thing, right, is there's a democratization of that information from, you know, people beginning to, you know, talk about potential weather to uh, people talking about past events and, you know, things like rapid intensification, all of these things that seem, you know, months ago to be, um you know, a hobby perhaps for people who are, are talking about this really become reality and shape our future strategies moving forward. Uh, meteorology has to be a part of that. You know, we're, we're in contact through different data sets uh, continually with um, those types of forecasts. We're working closely with all of the government agencies who, again, are, are tied into that. So the beauty of it is you know, to a large extent, there's this single source of information. And the hope is that um, by sharing the information, contributing it to nurturing it, to uh, making sure that we continually make the investments that are necessary uh, in the future, that data set becomes so important in being able to shape what you're going to do before the storm strikes. Do you have the right um, evacuation? Do you understand which loads, roads are likely to be flooded? Can we make sure that our teams, as they begin to move forward, are in a safe place instead of a position where they'll be trapped? All of that is tied you know, to Mother Nature, and in particular, the profession you're a part of, of their ability to say, hey, this is the likely likely um, scenario that plays out because in the end, as that is all occurring, it's all based on risk. We make very risk decision, uh, risk-based decisions uh, that become critical in those first steps as we begin to set up to be able to respond. Something else that comes to mind as I listened to you speak earlier, you, you talked about how you, you get in, in, in the field or in, in the disaster area. This makes me assume that you have pretty solid relationships with local authorities, um, national, state, federal authorities where you and Team Rubicon can get in. Because I, mean, I imagine in a disaster area, they're trying to limit who's coming in and out of there. But you have, you know, special agreements or memorandum of understandings, letter of agreements and so forth, uh, uh, so that you're really integrated with this full uh, response and disaster mitigation effort. Yeah, I think, you know, as a, you know, kind of a top line level of guidance that we understand is disasters happen locally, the impact is local and the answer is local. So if you can build those relationships early, if you can train your people to use the same language and the same process as the locality you're going to serve, if you have relationships with the sheriff or the local emergency manager or the state emergency managers and with FEMA and they understand what you can do, and instead of you showing up and making a pitch for this is what we can do and what we can deliver. If you've already done that ground game ahead of time and you 
built the relationships and you can be able to say, this is what we will be able to do if this occurs, then it's significantly more powerful because then they say, we know what we can do. What do we need to do to get that delivered in our community? I think a a really great recent example were those terrible tornadoes in Kentucky. You know, we had emergency managers uh, that we were conversing with in the 48 or 24 hours prior to that. And then right after the tornado struck, they said, listen, we need your men and women um, to be able to get here. It's very ambiguous, you know, ambiguous, the damage, you know, it's midnight, you know, on that Friday night after those tornadoes struck, get your people moving. And that was all built from the relationships uh, and what had happened before. So this is where standardization is really, really important where people understand that you, you're going to bring people in and have a safe environment. You're going to be able to execute certain missions. Uh, and that's led to incredible, you know, advances in relationships and recent uh, hurricanes. We've worked with search and rescue teams, you know, where we have route clearance teams who are trained to use chainsaws to cut down felled trees and heavy equipment to move, you know, the, that debris off the road. And we were partnered with them in helping their SAR teams, you know, cut their way into um, potential rescues in Louisiana after the, those terrible hurricanes. And those are the types of things that begin to happen. Relationship-based, trust-based, clear communications of the skills and capabilities that you can bring in an understanding that you're going to be there when that disaster strikes. And, and speaking of disasters, uh, we know that 2020 had a record number of billion dollar plus disasters and uh, 2021 was looking like it had the second most or so forth uh, based on some of the notes. Um, are you noticing, I mean, I think from a climate perspective, the science suggests that extreme weather events are going to continue to trend in that direction towards more extremity and frequency and intensity. Uh, have you just noticed this in terms of your operations? I mean, I mean, just in your experience doing this or what's your feel for the frequency and types of disasters you observe? Yeah, I think, um, you know, a couple of things really stand out during my tenure here at, at Team Rubicon. Uh, number one, I think the trend you outlined of increasing frequency of major disasters and increasing costs of those major disasters, those hold true. And certainly the numbers begin to indicate that. Uh, so yes, that is of course impact, be it fires, tornadoes, or hurricanes. Another thing that jumps out is the severity in particular rapid intensification, you know, watching these storms that go from, you know, cat one to cat five over the span of, a few days to me is just absolutely amazing. And who would have ever thought you'd pay attention to, you know, water temperatures in the Gulf. Those are the types of things we look at. And again, to that point about partnering with meteorologists or NOAA or whoever it might be um, to understand the predictability of that. And the other piece uh, that's really, really interesting is the populations that are impacted. People continue to move into areas that have high probability of disaster. The density of people continues to to build in those areas. Um, There's just more people in a lot of these areas, you know, and and you really begin to see that as these these storms um, strike. And the final component, I think, and it gets back to the heart of unmet needs is, you know, there are a lot of people that 
don't have the resources to recover from these types of disasters. And that's when I think it's important when we have, you know, donors or people who invest in our vision and our mission support us so we can deliver that aid when people potentially have no other options. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm talking with uh, Art De La Cruz from uh, Team Rubicon. I'm getting my notes here because I wanted to really get into something you just alluded to. Uh, and that's how you operate I and mean, how you're supported. Um, I, I imagine that it, there are several ways to that question, but uh, in terms of your sponsorship grants, donations, uh, so, uh, even may perhaps even responding to RFPs, I don't know. Tell us about how you, because you, this, this, you, you, you send in volunteers and you are there around the world. I mean, I know that you uh, work with relief organizations like the World Central Kitchen, for example, and uh, various other international and national organizations. This is not cheap. Uh, so how do you maintain and how can we help and how can listeners help? Yeah, you know, it's uh, the way I like to think of it. And this is this is probably an industry problem. But, you know, people often think of organizations like ours and label them as as not for profits. This is a nonprofit. The way we have to run our organization and the way we measure it is we are a for impact organization. And that impact has to be to help survivors after natural disasters or humanitarian crisis or help communities prepare for the likelihood of a disaster, mitigate uh, that potential thing. And when, when it becomes really powerful is we begin to build a narrative of don't donate at the point of need, at the time of need, donate before so we can assemble and train the team that will go in there to win the game. I want our donors to understand that $100 provided in January of 2020 might create a Sawyer who is going to go into the field after the hurricanes in 2021 in Louisiana and go back in the field after the tornadoes in Kentucky at the end of 2021. And this person, this man or woman is going to be just itching to get back in the field uh, as the hurricane season hits in 2022 or as fire mitigation is required in 2022. So it becomes an investment where we continue to build capacity. They also, um, uh, one of the things that we work very, very hard um, to do is to build trust. We 
would love to get to this point in time where people understand that Team Rubicon and our gray shirts, if there is a disaster where there is unmet need and the, um, the opportunity comes to have impact that will deploy and they trust that their money will be used to get these men and the women uh, into the field to have impact. Because again, like you talked about, you know, it costs money and that money becomes, this is where what's so amazing about the people who donate, you know, across the board for whatever cause it might be from, from COVID to Afghan resettlement to, to natural disasters, they fuel a mission that results in, you know, meeting needs for people uh, that have been impacted by these various things. It It's delivery of goodness. And the other cool thing about it is in particular for the volunteers, they're our most important asset. One thing I cannot do, no matter how much money we have is, is buy people's times. You know, when, when this strikes you, you could have a paid force. You can have people who say, you know what? I am built to serve. I'm ready to get, to get out there to make a difference. And I'm giving my time and I'm going to get something back. I will be able to look over my shoulder as I get in the car and leave our operations base and say, I made a difference. I will help rebuild a house and I'll get hugged by a homeowner. I will look at an emergency manager and say, we did our part to help ensure your community will be resilient. You know, if some bizarre lightning strike starts a fire, all of those things are the reward that our volunteers have. We have to curate an experience that's great for them because again, they are our most important asset and our donors help to make that happen. We have a cultural value and we say, you know, one of them is your mother's a donor. You know, we treat every dollar as if, you know, it's something your mom gave you. Um, can you deploy it in a way that's meaningful and makes that experience great? And ultimately, will it be tied to helping a survivor of a natural disaster have a better tomorrow? Yeah. So that's, you know, where where can people, if anyone's listening, how, how can they donate? Yeah, they can, uh, you know, I'd suggest they take a look at our website, teamrubiconusa.org. You're going to see who we are the mission reperform, you know, real time where we're at and what type of missions we're doing. Uh, and of course, that's one form of donation, the monetary piece. Uh, you know, we'd love to have people that believe in us, you know, giving us money every month, you know, maybe it's a dollar, maybe it's a hundred dollars, whatever it might be. Because again, that support allows us to fuel the mission. And we'd love to have people take a look and go, maybe this fits my desire to serve communities and volunteer. And you can find all of that uh, at that site. Again, that's teamrubiconusa.org. And are you on Twitter and social media as well? Yeah, you uh, Team Rubicon USA is on social media across Instagram, uh, where we really, you know, communicate um, the people who perform the mission, where they are, these real-time events as they go, because again, that awareness is huge. And that's another way people can support is by promoting the things we do uh, and the people who do that work. Yeah. Um, for you personally, um, what has, is there any specific events or opportunities or moments that just really resonate for you personally and in being involved in any particular weather event or a success story? Yeah. You know, um, it's funny. I could ask that a lot, uh, Marshall. And one of the things that, you know, I always have two answers. The first one is that recurring story of gratitude that I feel when I know I've made a difference, right? When I know the organization I lead and especially the amazing volunteers who come here have made a difference. And you see that in a homeowner that we welcome back after their home home's been destroyed by a hurricane, 
you see it in someone who says, uh, I can't believe you guys are here doing this for free. You see it in things like, uh, you know, our recent deployments to the Navajo nation, where you understand that you've made a difference in a community being impacted, you know, during the pandemic. Uh, and you certainly see it, um, in different ways. Like who would have thought that collecting donations for our Afghan allies so they could resettle, would be so meaningful, but, you know, in its totality, you have this ability to wake up and go, I made a difference in this world, um, to get into the specifics, you know, one of the, one of the moments that I'll never forget is, you know, when hurricane Harvey hit to watch that play out and to see, you know, the storm hit Houston, you know, recharge over the Gulf and come right back. And, you know, number one is just the immensity of the almost incomprehensible amounts of uh, rain that fell. I think it was 54 inches yeah, in a week or so. Yeah. yeah. And to see it play out and to really see that a community, you know, what else can you do against mother nature in that moment? Uh, and we're still rebuilding houses in Houston still rebuilding houses in Houston. And that's when you really begin to understand that moment of Houston was one of those things to your earlier question about becoming a weather geek. And also, you know, is weather really getting worse? That's one of those moments where I go, that's a tough data point to take as an anomaly when you look at it. Um, yeah. oh, so those yeah, are the yeah. two things. Absolutely. And you just don't. Yeah. And then that's one of the things that I often talk about is I talk to people in Houston. Like, yeah, we get floods all the time. And I mean, I, you know, I didn't think it would really be that bad. You don't get 50 inches of rain in a week all the time. That's that's called an anomaly event or a new normal system. And so, uh, you know, it's important for people to understand that they're sort of, you know, normalcy biases don't necessarily apply to the weather and climate systems we're dealing with today. Uh, one, one quick final question. How's COVID impacted your operations? Yeah, I think COVID, you know, one of the things we say is every operation is a COVID operation. You know, on March 12th of 2020, we were faced with this, you know, as, as they declared the national emergency, it was kind of, I, I, I always use Apollo 13 as the analogy, you know, and that scene where they say, we can save the astronauts, here's all the stuff, you throw it on the table, figure out how to scrub, you know, the carbon dioxide out of the capsule. You know, we said, listen, this is gonna impact communities. There's gonna be unmet needs what do we have and what can we do? And we have done everything from, you know, helping neighbors in the COVID environment by delivering food and partnering with food banks, vaccinations, um, to, um, you know, helping overwhelmed, you know, medical, um, communities, uh, all of these things were things that weren't on our game plan, but they were things that we felt we could have impact on. They were unmet needs, you know, so we launched into those, um, but through it all, we had to also be able to manage risk in these disasters during COVID in particular, it was very, very difficult before the vaccinations arrived where you're uncertain of what, you know, you were facing and we made, you know, tough decisions to have to limit, you know, the volunteers to, you know, not at high risk populations. You know, we made later decisions to say, listen, we need people to be vaccinated. And they were all centered on kind of three things. The first one was we had an obligation to keep our volunteers uh, and their families safe. Right. Number two, 
is we had to keep the communities we were serving safe. We couldn't introduce new risk by, you know, how do we make sure that the people aren't a vector for transmission as they go into communities? How are we doing the best we can to make sure that we're keeping again, um, you know, people from getting sick. And then the final one was when they're done serving and they get in their car and they go home, how do we make sure that they're not introducing risk uh, into their families uh, as they return back to their communities and that set up practices for PPE and cleanliness and washing your hands and then vaccinations and, you know, really creative ways of ensuring people weren't, you know, when we're lodging in gymnasiums, that they were separated the right way to keep people safe. Um, but every operation is a COVID operation and COVID in itself is a significant amount of, of our operation as well as it continues to, to evolve and grow. Yeah, it's been really, really this conversation it, you know, it's in some ways been pretty heavy and dealing with some very sort of critical and serious things. And we thank Team Rubicon for what they do. I want to end on somewhat of a lighter note, because on your Twitter, you describe yourself as well below average golfer. And I can relate to that as well. Um, where do you like to play and you know, what's your favorite uh, place to play and what's your ideal weather conditions for playing? Yeah, you know, um, my ideal weather conditions for golf are um, basically, you know, dictated by the people around me. And I hope, <laughs> you know, my hope is that they're way better than I am. Uh, the best piece of golf advice I ever got was, you know, my, my best friend from the Navy looked at me and said, you know, Art, you're not good enough to... Um, to keep score. So just go out there and have fun, you know, don't keep score and, you know, don't spend a lot of time looking for the, the balls that you shot into the, the woods. Let's just yeah. enjoy the moment. Um, so yeah, well below average and, and even, even calling me a golfer, frankly, Marshall is a bit of a stretch. <laughs> I, I resonate Art, completely. I love, I love it, but I just don't get out there enough to be credible at it. But I, I, I did want to kind of get that in before we go. Last question where, I mean, I know you mentioned your organization, but um, anything else you want to point us to as we close out here? I think, you know, one of the things that I pass all of your, your amazing listeners again is, you know, we'd love to have you consider joining our team or donating to our team. You know, in the absence of team Rubicon, I think it's worth in these extraordinary times, understanding that we all have the ability to contribute in some manner when disaster strikes, there will be need somewhere in your community. Someone will not have the resources necessary to respond. Someone impacted by these natural disasters will generally have no recourse. You can deliver hope and you can deliver services that will help a person and it will drive your community to be more resilient and closer. And it'll, you know, kind of, uh, help us to, as a nation, I think become stronger in these moments of need. Yeah, absolutely. And that's where we have to end it. But before we go, I've got to do the geek of the week. We like to highlight a scientist, superstar, great geologist, or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's Geek of the Week is Max Bilecki. Max is studying atmospheric sciences. And Max, I hope I got your name right. Max is studying atmospheric sciences at Northern Vermont University. Max maintains a Facebook page at Max B, the letter B, weather, with daily posts about the forecast and interesting weather. The March 2018 Nor'easters, yes, there were four of them, is his most memorable weather event. Fun fact, Max is also an avid self-taught accordion player. First time I've probably ever said that in my life. And if you or someone you know would be a deserving geek of the week, please check out our social media 
pages. Art, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you for having us, Marshall. Having me, I really appreciate uh, appreciate you know the conversation. Yes, I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and we'll see you next time. And go volunteer, and thank you, veterans. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.